Well, good morning, everybody. As our time is getting started, let me open us with a word of prayer as people feel free to go ahead and keep getting your chairs however you want them situated, and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be together in our class. I pray, Lord, that you will help us have a good time of study in your word. I pray, Lord, that the truths will be evident to us and that you'll help us not just to hear, but also to begin thinking of the application of these truths to our lives. Pray that you give me clarity, help me be accurate, and pray for all of us to to grow in our knowledge of you because of our study of the book of Joel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I am glad to say that I survived the two and three-year-olds. It's been a long time since I've been been around a two or a three year old, and fortunately there were other people there. Joel Purcell was there, Josh and Amber Jowers were there. We had a helper, Hannah Sanborn, and with five of us and twelve to thirteen kids, I still was glad to leave. And <laughs> but let me tell you, you need to volunteer. We need workers there because if those kids are with their parents, those parents will never get a chance to worship. I'm convinced of that because. They have energy, and we can't make our doors locked from the inside, so you've got to guard the doors, you've got to guard the lights, you've got to guard everything, but the escape artist apparently arrived the second hour, so I thankfully was coming here, and the, the kids that you really have to watch, so. so anyway, my mind's a bit discombobulated, so if I'm struggling this morning, you'll bear with me. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you'd like, we are studying our Time in Joel, and last week as I began the verse-by-verse approach to the book of Joel, we focused, and my outline dealt with the fact that in the first chapter, before really Joel gets into application, and there are points of application, but before he gets into the thrust of why he's writing the book and what he's calling the people to do, he's painting a picture for them that sets the stage for everything he says, not only for his immediate call to action, but also for his prophetic call to action and warning, including future warnings. So chapter 1 is foundational to the things that we'll study in chapter 2 and chapter 3 because it will all point back to the pictures that are being painted here. So the images and the, the foundational events of chapter 1 are critical for us to fully understand the book and also to understand how the book would have impacted the nation of Judah, as I indicated, this is the southern tribe after the division of the kingdom between the northern tribe, which is often referred to as Israel, and the southern tribes referred to as Judah. This is focused on the southern tribes. And as I tried to emphasize last week, and I'm going to be talking about over and over parallels to our society, but the ultimate application of the book of Joel, I will reiterate this, is not to society out there, it's to us. We're God's people. So we need to not get sidetracked to start thinking about all the lessons all the other people need to, th- to see, which is true, but it's beside the point for us. We need to see the lessons that we have to learn and applications to our life. So setting the stage for the lessons of Joel, I had a basic three-point outline, and so I'll do a quick, quick review, and we'll jump into the continuation today. The first point was very simple, the true messenger of Joel. The book is very clear that it's Joel, the son of Pethuel, who we don't know anything about, that wrote it, 
but the word of the Lord that came to him is the focus of the book. This is God speaking. I highlighted a, a scripture. There's several scriptures I go to a lot. This is one of them, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what happened with Joel. He didn't just decide to write this because he looked at the culture and said, boy, culture needs to hear this. God gave him the word. It's God speaking. It's God's authority. The second point was the target audience of the message. It's found in verses 2 and 3. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. It's really trying to call the attention of everyone who's there. From the highest levels of leadership to the lowest common person in the land. And the land is just a reference to God's land. He promised it to the people. And so he is targeting them, and he's targeting a group of people that have never experienced anything like this before. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? In other words, he's dealing with something unprecedented But it's not just a message for those who are living through this unprecedented circumstance. It's also for their children and their children's children. The idea is that this is a message for the people experiencing it today, but it's a message for the people of God in the future as well. And the third point, we started this point, but we didn't finish this point, setting the stage for the lessons of Joel, is the calamity and its consequences that inspired the message. The calamity and its consequences that inspired the message. And we talked about the calamity last week. It's in verse 4. And this week we're going to start talking about the consequences. But the calamity is very simple. Verse 4, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the, and what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. He's painting a picture of a real event and he's just using poetic language to describe wave after wave of locusts, the insect locusts coming through and devastating everything. Any plant life that was alive was gone. And the first locust would have eaten and it would be bad, but then you think, well, maybe they didn't get everything and then another one comes and then another one comes and another one comes. It's a picture of complete devastation. And in an agricultural economy, which was what primarily Judah was, the loss of all of your crops was devastating. But this went beyond that because it killed the plants that grow the crops. If you've ever had fruit trees or something like that and you plant them, they don't start producing right away. You have to wait seasons for them to grow and eventually you pair them and prune them and eventually they'll produce a lot. This was the complete devastation of the entire economic system and there was no United Nations or anybody else to swoop in and help them. So that's the calamity. And we can already picture some of the consequences, but... Joel, as we continue on, starts to lay out those consequences. And he's using poetic language and he's describing real events. And I really was struggled with how best to present this material because as you start going through it, you see that he's really dealing with three separate aspects of the life of Judah. 
And he just deals with the impact on each of those segments one at a time, and then he pulls it all together. And so while I thought about jumping ahead and painting a particular picture, I decided I'm just going to go through the text bit by bit and I'll start filling in the picture, but know that more is coming. And it'll, some of it will be next week. But I want us to really be able to grasp this and not only on the first instance, I do want us to know what Joel was saying. That's critical. But I think just as critical is I want us to understand the full impact of what he was saying on the people that heard that message. Because at least for me, I didn't pick that up just in my own reading of it. It was in my studying that more things started jumping out. And so I want to try and paint some of that for us as we go through these bit by bit. So we'll start looking at the consequences of the calamity. And the first segment that's being impacted, and this is going to take some explanation, begins at verse 5, and it actually goes through verse 7. But verse 5 starts this way. Awake, drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. I want to be very careful that we don't miss what's being condemned and we don't miss the application of this because our culture has issues with alcohol that color our thinking. And so the initial, what we may think he's saying is not actually his focus right now. But he says, awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers. So he's talking about people who drink to excess, and he's talking about people who don't drink to excess, but the picture is just of those who consume the alcoholic wine. When he says awake drunkards, he's picturing just what you think he's picturing, somebody in a drunken stupor. They're laying in the gutter, or they're sleeping in their house, and he's saying, wake up, and you better start crying. And then the others that aren't in a drunken super, but the wine drinkers in general, he's saying, you need to wail. These are pictures of anguish, sorrow, despair, crying out in agony. But the reason is perhaps different than what we think. I don't want to be misunderstood in what I'm about to say. But I have to say it, he's not saying weep because you're a drunkard. And he's not saying wail because you consume wine. He's not condemning the use of alcohol despite this language. Now I want to be very clear, so I'm not misunderstood. Drunkenness is sin, period. Don't, don't mishear me. Somebody that gets intoxicated with wine and loses their faculties is sinning. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 18. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what would be examples of being unwise and living in the days of evil and being foolish, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine. 
Couldn't be more clear. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, there's a long list of evil behavior. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What's unrighteous? Meaning, what sin? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, I'm not in any way saying that being a drunkard is not sin. Drinking alcohol to excess is sin. And again, so that I'm on balance, lest I be unclear, the act of drinking alcohol in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. How do I say that without any hesitation? Because Jesus drank wine. In fact, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because unlike John the Baptist, Jesus didn't abstain. Matthew eleven eighteen to 19 For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Obviously, it was a lie. It wasn't true that he was a drunkard, but he consumed wine. That was the Last Supper. In fact, I always think it's interesting, because sometimes people wrongly, I believe, say, well, maybe the wine wasn't actually alcoholic. But clearly, Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, turning water into wine, was dealing with alcoholic beverages because of the whole dialogue. It's found in John chapter 2. Now, I say that drunkenness is a sin, then I qualify it and say just drinking wine isn't necessarily a sin because I don't want to be misunderstood, and yet none of that's the point of Joel. It's just in America, we get hung up on that. I remember being, the first time I, well, it's the only time I went to Italy, I went to Italy on a missions trip, and a godly man who was, who was leading it pulled us aside at a church service, and he said, I just want to ask you something. He said, we're going to have a meal afterwards, and unless your conscience is truly offended, don't make a big deal out of the fact that people are going to offer you wine. He said, in fact, one of the men has his own vineyards, and he's going to offer you wine. And if you're convicted before the Lord that it's sin, don't drink. But he said, otherwise, Italians will never understand Americans because they're not drinking to get drunk. It's just a part of what they do. So I clarify all of that because I know alcohol has a different hold on our society. And I say this as somebody that comes from a family that's littered with alcoholism. So I'm not misunderstanding any of this. But this is where we need to step away from our American focus on these things and look back at what's being said here. Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers what follows. On account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. We're getting closer to his focus. There's a sense, and as I explain in verses 6 and really verse 7, we'll see this picture, but he's really pointing at something beyond the use of alcohol. He's pointing to the fact that life was good. He's not saying drunkenness was good, but he's painting a picture of a culture that in a sense was carefree. They were relaxed. They had time to enjoy the fruits of their labors, including wine. Some of them drank to excess. That was sin. But some were just drinking. 
but to this picture of a society that was relaxed and laid back and they were enjoying things. He's basically saying the party is over because the locusts have ended it. This phrase, sweet wine, is really, the experts tell us, is referencing the early fermented batch of grapes that hasn't had a chance to fully develop yet. But the picture by him using this is that the process of making new wine is over because you've got nothing to make it with. And he's in essence saying, as he's already called everybody in the nation to attention, he's saying, look... You who are enjoying yourselves, you who are living this carefree life, you need to be brokenhearted because it's over. It's done. For an alcoholic drunkard, you start crying because your addiction is over. And you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. The locusts have taken care of them. For the non-drunkers, those who were just drinking responsibly, it's over for you too. There is no more leisure Pursuits. It's not just that this crop of grapes is gone, it's that the grape vines are gone. They can't grow more. The carefree life is done. Verse 6 paints this other, he uses imagery of painting the picture of what the locusts did. He says, for a nation has invaded my land. A lot of discussion, I think it's possessive, that's God's land. Mighty and without number, its teeth are the teeth of a lion and has the fangs of a lioness. And he's just again, he's, he's using poetic language to paint a picture of destruction. The locusts didn't literally have lion's teeth, but the damage they did... And their small bodies, because of the overwhelming numbers that came in wave after wave, was devastating. It was like an invading army that plundered everything. It's like an animal, like a lion or a lioness that got a hold of you and just tears everything to shreds. Verse 7. It has made my vine a waste. That's why there's no more sweet wine, because there's no more grapevines. And my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. The picture is that on the fig trees, the locusts have consumed the bark. And you take the bark off of a tree, the tree doesn't survive. When it says the branches have become white, that's just picturing that the the bark stripped away. As we're about to see, it's not just the wine that's gone. It's not just the fig trees that are gone. We'll see later everything else is gone too. But saying that the vine is done and the fig tree is done carried profound implications for the nation. And this is where I want to focus on the impact of these words on the original audience. Again, everybody would not have been blind that locusts have come through and destroyed everything. And he's trying to get their attention because he's saying, do you understand what just occurred? 
He's, in essence, making a declaration to the people by these simple verses that God's hand of blessing has been removed. The locusts are not just a natural and economic disaster. They're all of that. They are a theological disaster. Because it's a statement that the prosperity that God had given them, God has taken away. I'm going to illustrate this with a couple of verses that are going to tell you something of the mindset of the people and the impact of saying the vine and the fig. Because he was being literal, but there's a picture behind the literal. The greatest period of economic prosperity in the history of the nation of Israel was with King Solomon. If you read the biblical accounts, he had unlimited money. People came from foreign nations. They brought gifts. David had done all of the work by God's divine hand and then Solomon inherited it. And he made all the richest people of today nothing. He was wise. Now we know from a moral standpoint he was a failure because he had an appetite for women that led him astray from the one true God. But the country as a whole had it all. They had peace. They had prosperity that was unparalleled. And people of the Jewish nation, even if they didn't live then, would remember that history. It was recorded. And this is how 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 24 and 25 describes summarizing that period. It's not the only place in Scripture. It's just a reference. And it shows what I'm trying to get to. This was the the greatest prosperity, the biggest blessing the nation had ever had. Verse 24. For he, he's talking about Solomon, had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipsa even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river. And he had peace on all sides around about him. Verse 25, so Judah and Israel lived in safety. And hear these words, every man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Every man under his vine and his fig tree was a picture of the prosperity and the peace and the leisure that God had given them. In fact, in a different prophecy of future blessing in Micah 4.4, 4, talking about the future, it says this in verse 4, Micah 4.4, 4, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So as Joel is crying out, and it's God crying out to the people, as Joel's crying out and saying, listen to me, awake, listen to me. It's like the old, well, we're old enough, the old E.F. Hutton commercials, you know. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. That's what Joel's trying to do. Get their attention. And when he says, the vine is gone, the fig tree is gone, Part of why he's trying to get their attention is to remind them of the significance of that. 
it shows God's favor has been removed. That's why the drunkards are to weep. And that's why the wine drinkers are to wail. It's not just that the alcohol has gone, it's that this is a picture that God's blessing is gone. The absence of wine and the absence of the fig tree is a far greater consequence than the ability to eat a fig and to drink a glass. Don't you see it, he's saying? This isn't just about the bugs. Your fellowship with God is at stake. I can't help but pause and again trying to be careful but I think we see some of this happening around us when we look at the world around us. We've largely been left alone. We are a prosperous country. We, most of the American church, there's a lot of people who are hurting but we have a measure of prosperity that the rest of the world can't comprehend. I can say without question, I don't know where all of you live, but if I found out the smallest, least impressive by American standard place you live, it's a palace, even if it's a one-bedroom compartment compared to places I've been. And this societal descent into darkness is a warning to us to be aware that God's hand of blessing and protection if it's not already removed, he's pulling it back, it seems. I think there's a sense, as American Christians, we need to be in mourning. We need to weep and wail. But not just because the geopolitical state called America isn't what he wanted it to be, but because of the implications for us if, in fact, God is removing his hand. Our time of leisure and frivolity may be over as well. And the implications on our daily lives are potentially profound. And it should break our hearts. It should call us to cry out to God. But I'm going to suggest to you, not now, but at a later time when I come back to application, that our response to the heartbreak is should be different than what many people think it should be. But again, I'm going to come back to that. But you can't escape the parallels. But it goes deeper than just God's blessing of prosperity has been removed from the nation of Judah. In fact, what we're turning into next is perhaps the most significant aspect of the picture that Joel's painting the leisure economy has been destroyed. The carefree life has been destroyed. That's the fig and the vine are gone. But it's a greater, greater, greater consequence to this calamity. The worship of God has been rendered impossible. The worship of God has been rendered impossible. 
which for God's people is a disaster far beyond the mere loss of fun and enjoyment. And we see this picture painted in verses 8 to 11. Verse 8 is saying this, Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. He's about to tell us why you should wail. Is he just talking to the priests? Is he just talking to the people? I think the picture is for the whole nation. Even if the people leading it are supposed to be the priests. This is the whole nation. He says, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. And he's just painting a simple picture here. There are nuances that people go to that I don't think really are relevant to the picture. Just step back and think about a bride on her wedding day. Still in our culture for a young woman, this is one of the most exciting days, if not the the most exciting days. And we would expect her to be dressed in something very nice and appropriate, and that wasn't unheard of back in the day. Brides still prepared themselves for marriage wearing special clothes. But in this case, the bride-to-be would never get to enjoy the benefits of marriage because the bridegroom died. It's an illustration, it's a picture. And he's saying, can you imagine the depth of despair for a young woman who has her whole life in front of her and she found the man that she wants to be married to and she was ready and they were committed and he was gone. Cry like that. Imagine that heartbreak. In fact, the use of sackcloth, the young woman that should be in her wedding gown is in a funeral attire. That type of despondency, that type of we are elated and now we're devastated is what he's saying the people should have. I started studying this a little bit because people were talking about it. There may even be overtures, again, to God removing himself because there are pictures in the Old Testament of God's people being the bride And God being the husband. And it may very well be that in addition to saying, look, you should be crying this way because we understand what it would be for a young woman to lose her husband, painting a different picture saying, we as the bride of God, figuratively, can see that we've lost our husband. In Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 8, the picture is painted. Verse 5, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you. So the picture of heartache for the nation would be when God turned His back on them. Why would He turn His back on them? Because of their sin, because of their turning away from Him. And next week, I'm going to read some passages that not in the bridegroom analogy, but God turning away even more clear. But for now, 
understand perhaps the dual imagery of this. He's saying, wail like that. You're so sad because if you were a bride-to-be and your husband died, but also if you're the nation of God, the bride, and he turns his back on you, it's no less heartbreaking. The tragedy of these locusts, this calamity, is evidence of the loss of fellowship of the bride, God's people, with the husband, God himself. And verse 9 paints the full picture of that loss. Verse 9 says this, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. Verse 10, The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, Fresh oil fails. And this is a very, very specific picture showing the extent of the devastation. Unlike how we worship and we show up on Sunday and we have direct access to God, that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ and His sacrifice was still in the future. The veil of the temple was not yet torn in two. It still existed. So God ordained worship for His people to require daily activity carried out by the priests, God's ministers, the tribe of Levi. And each day at the temple, the priests of God had to offer sacrifices that were very specific. For the nation to worship God, this had to occur. I'm going to read a longer section, but because it explains everything, Numbers 28, verses 1 to 8. And again, this isn't necessarily the only text, but this paints the picture that we need to see. Numbers 28, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. In other words, it's not optional. You've got to do this. Command the people. They have to do it. You shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also, verse 5, and this starts tying into what Joel's talking about. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Verse 7, then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb in the holy place. You shall pour out the drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. Verse 8. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight as the grain offering of the morning and as its drink offering you shall offer it an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Unless there be any confusion, that strong drink, that drink offering was wine. You can see that going back to Numbers 15.5. And you shall prepare wine... For the drink offering, one-fourth of a hen with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. So every day for the nation of Judah to worship God, they had to have a grain offering which required flour. And it required olive oil. 
And they had to have a drink offering, which required wine, which required grapes. Every morning, every evening, that was God's command. But the locusts have come, and it's no longer possible. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off, meaning there's no way to worship. With what? How do you offer the daily offering when you don't have any of the raw materials? Verse 10, the field is ruined. The land mourns. For the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. For the people of God, it's an incomprehensible tragedy. They cannot obey God. There is no more grain. There is no more wine. There will be no more oil. And it won't come back anytime soon. Which means there's no worship. God's not only removed His hand of blessing, but now they can't even, in their limited Old Testament sense, they can't have worship. You can imagine for the priests why they're mourning. They don't have any other thing they're supposed to do. Their sole reason for existing is gone. All because of the locusts that have destroyed everything. The people of God are helpless. They're cut off from God's blessing, but they're also cut off from God Himself. It's interesting when we think back at the last year. At this time last year, we were still sorting out what are we going to do about this thing that they call the COVID coronavirus. And I remember in March when we sent out the notice that we were shutting down. And we were closed from think March 20th until May. And if you remember that, that was challenging for us. We couldn't come to church. Now you could turn on the live stream. Steve still preached. Joel still sang. I was here every Sunday. People were working. And then if you recall when we finally came back, remember the registration system. That was a pain in the neck. As much as we tried, there were dear brothers and sisters. I love that they love church, but boy, they were figured out a way to game the system and jump in front of the line. And But it's a picture of the desperation to gather and worship. And even now, I, I know all of us, we still wish the rows weren't separated and we don't like masks and all that kind of stuff. Here's the point. All of those things were merely a nuisance. We still worshiped. These people lost it all. And the screaming, the call for anguish and wailing is almost as though it happened, they know it happened, they weren't thinking about the implications of it yet. And Joel's coming on the scene saying, hold on a second. Do you realize what has occurred? The drunkards haven't even thought about the temple yet. And the people leaving the life of leisure haven't noticed that the the Levites can't do anything. And Joel's trying to call everybody to attention to say, this is bigger than you think. And that's not even the full extent of the picture. But so far, the joy is gone. The party is over. 
and more importantly, for the people living their daily lives, in practical terms, God is gone. Now, does God ever completely forsake His people? Of course not. But the practical implications of what occurred are supposed to call them to cry out in desperation because there's no blessings of God. There's no worship of God. Weep, wail, mourn. How can they do anything else? But again, the problems go even deeper. But I'm out of time today. But next week we're going to see that even life itself was in danger. So they didn't have anything to eat. But we need to take stock. Again, I'm painting a picture on the way to application. But even now, begin to start thinking how you can learn lessons from these things. As bad as America is, praise God that we can still worship. Could the day come where we can't do it freely? Maybe, but we're not there. We're here. Praise the Lord for this. We don't have to be blind to what's in the future, but it's not here yet, and we ought to thank the Lord every day that we can do this. Because could you imagine if you couldn't worship? So I'll close today in prayer. We'll come back next week, and hopefully I can finish painting the picture and showing the full extent of what's going on. So let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I know the struggle it is for me to fully comprehend what's going on in your word, and I pray that you will help us have illumination from your spirit to more fully understand the implications, not just of what was happening to the nation of Judah, but how we're supposed to apply this to our own lives. Lord, I thank you that we can worship. We take so many things for granted, and worship is one of them, but we thank you, Lord. There's so many things we could be fearful of, but each day has enough troubles of its own. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. And today we can worship, so we say thank you. I pray for each one of us this week that we'll live our lives daily with an awareness of the great privilege you've given us because for all of our own personal faults and because and despite all the personal faults of our country and our land and our people we can worship you help us live in your presence with gratitude we ask all of this in Jesus name Amen.